0: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come today with a very important text in front of us that gets below the surface, the veneer of, um, really, of life. And it gets to the heart of what's really going on inside each of us. Um, This text, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, is a stunning one. And we pray that we would hear from you today. We're, We're here in front of your word your inspired word, your people are ready to listen. You've prepared all the circumstances for this day. Nothing has happened by accident. And so now we pray that you would do your work. Do it deeply. Um, Lord, do it quickly. Um, Do it in such a way that we will be eternally changed as we hear, listen, and respond to your scriptures. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we learned last week, there are some passages in the Bible that are meant to make us shudder. And that kind of text was what we studied last week with the examination of the one unforgivable sin, that being the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We discovered that the frightening reality is that there's no way for us to fully understand the full picture of what the what the Bible is even saying here, not really even knowing what the line is or where it is that God um, would cause us in effect to see that we 've crossed the line, where the Holy Spirit withdraws his his convicting work um, such that a person is never able to repent. See, the problem is is that when the Holy Spirit withdraws his convicting work, the person never feels any conviction. They never um, sense the need to repent, they never sense the need to turn. And so therefore, there's a shocking reality that the Spirit of God has removed the power of this person to even know that they need to be convicted. That passage was meant to shock us. The sober reality of what Jesus is saying here, if you get this, should be that the idea of the unforgivable sin should make your heart tremble. And there should be a question that emerges from the text, if you really understand it, and it's this. So where in the world does this sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit come from? Or how does this happen? How does it happen that somebody commits this sin? Because it almost makes sense that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, such a, a serious effect, an eternal sin that's not forgivable, doesn't just come out of nowhere. It doesn't just happen. It's got to come from someplace. So where does it come from? Here's where it comes from. The Bible tells us that that sin comes From the fruit of a poisoned heart. So Matthew 12 verses 33 to 37 should be seen as an extension of Jesus' teaching on this one unforgivable sin. And what Jesus does here is what he does so often, is he takes an issue that's on the outside and then he aims for the heart. In other words, he's going to press the Pharisees here beyond the reality of just the one unforgivable sin. He's going to show them and us that the real problem is not just the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as serious as that sin is. No, the real problem is a deeper one. It is the problem of their hearts. So their words, their blasphemy, reveal that their hearts were so far from God. Or to use our title for this morning, they were betrayed by words from the heart. So this morning, we're going to look at the three different heart-related issues. We're going to see how Jesus moves from the external to the internal and then to the eternal. And we're going to see that he begins to unfold the reality of what's happening in the hearts of these Pharisees. And we find here a really important passage about the internal workings of the human heart. There are three statements, and each of them come out of uh, three different spots in the text that begin with the word for. Verse 33 is the first one. It says, For a tree is known by its fruit. The second one, verse 34, is for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the third one is found in verse 37, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So those are the three that we're going to look at. Those three fours give us the summary statements of what Jesus wants us to hear about the heart. So we're going to look at each of them and discover the various layers as it relates to the problem of the heart. The first one is the matter of the external, or the actions are telling. Guys at the soundboard, you need to know that I don't have my clicker, so you're going to have to help me today. The external here, the the actions are telling. The first thing that we see is that Jesus uses a familiar analogy of the tree and fruit. Go take your Bibles and go over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 to 18, and um, Take a look at this particular passage, Matthew seven sixteen to 18. What you'll see here is that often in the Bible, Jesus uses this heart and fruit analogy thing in order to help communicate something that has very little to do with fruit or trees. It has everything to do with what's going on inside of the human heart. And we see this in Jesus... Um, Verse 16, he says this, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So the point of the analogy is that there is a direct connection between the kind of tree and the kind of fruit, between the calibre of the tree and the caliber of the fruit. In other words, grape vines yield what grapes Apple trees yield apples, fig trees yield figs that 's what happens. That's as natural as life itself, and the sure sign that you have a healthy apple tree is the production of apples. So good trees produce good fruit, and therefore also bad trees produce bad fruit. So Jesus' aim here is to help them see the natural connection, and here it is, between who you are and what you do. Verse 33, he says, "...they are to make the tree good or make the tree bad." Now, he's not saying literally make the tree. He's using a proverbial statement in regards to the word make. Like we would do when we say this. You give him an inch and he'll take a mile. So you're not literally giving someone an inch. You're just saying that in a figure of speech. So give him an inch and he'll take a mile. That's what Jesus means. So make the tree good or make the tree bad. Jesus' point is simply that there is a natural and normal relationship between the kind of tree or what the tree is and what it produces. He has something in mind here that relates to a spiritual dynamic on the inside, which is often which is why often you will find that when Jesus talks about fruit and trees that there's a tone of judgment, or when other writers talk about it in this way. look at Matthew chapter three and verse ten. this fruit tree thing is not meant to be. Some teaching that you kind of go, oh, that's interesting. It's meant to create a little bit of a warning. And that's why often when we talk about fruit and trees, there's an element of judgment that's in play. Matthew 3 and verse 10. John the Baptist says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice the context of judgment. So a tree, fruit, doesn't bear fruit, it's cut down, it's thrown into fire. Then go to Matthew 7 and verse 19. Again, listen for the connection between fruit, trees, who you are, and judgment. Matthew seven nineteen: Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So what exactly is Jesus trying to do here? Well, he's pressing this analogy in order to get a point that we often like to minimize. And here's the point, and it's this, that actions are telling. Actions are telling. So it's not just that these words came out of the Pharisees' mouth and they're like, whoops, we didn't mean that. Jesus would have us know, no, you meant that and you mean a whole lot more that you've never said. Actions are telling. He wants the Pharisees to see that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not just a slip of the tongue. No, he intends to make a strong point here that makes them and us uncomfortable, and it is that a person, in terms of their actions and what they say and what they do, that is what reveals who they really are. So when someone does something and and we say, no, no, that's not who you really are, you didn't really mean to do that, that's not who you are, the fact of the matter is you're probably right, they're far worse than that. Jesus is interested in exposure here, and so he uses this fruit tree analogy in order to expose the works of people and shine the light on who they really are. So what this does, friends, is this cuts through all the games that we play, all the things that we claim to believe, all the statements that we make. The real proof is not in what we say, the proof is in what we do. So it's clear and uncomfortable. Jesus says that bad things come from a bad person. Good things come from a good person. And the Pharisees can't hide behind their, their pious, religious-sounding statements. They can't hide behind their religious lingo. They can't cover up with their spiritual knowledge or being conservative. They, they can't live before God on their appearances. What they did shows who they really are. And even though their words are smooth, and, and they were spiritual sounding, and, oh, he doesn't commit this miracle by the power of the Spirit. No, he commits it by the devil. And even though it was some smooth sounding words, the reality was, those words came from a evil heart. And those actions are telling. So the question that we have to wrestle then is, how do we look at our actions? What do your actions tell you? What do they speak to you? Because I think what Jesus intends here is for this to be a warning, not so we can use it as a judgment on others, but rather as a mirror of self-examination, to realize that our actions expose who we really are. And I think what Jesus would want us to do here is to ask ourselves, what do my actions, what do my words really say? Because those words that come out, they come from somewhere. As we'll see next, it's just a small sliver of what's really going on in the heart. So the first is external, that actions are telling. Here's the second point, and that is a matter of Internal meaning that the source is within you. What happens now is that Jesus goes deeper. He goes more radical. He, he ratchets, ratchets up the discussion, if you will, in verses 34 and 35. It's meant to get to the core of what's really going on. He begins by making a shocking verbal statement. Verse 34, he says, You brood of vipers. okay now listen there's a lot of things that i'd like you to model in jesus life probably not this one okay so if you can walk on water you can say this to people but if you can't walk on water i wouldn't suggest you walking around and saying you brood of vipers or your kids are messing around the basement they're being naughty you wicked brood of vipers that's just i don't think that's how you should walk like jesus so jesus can say this because he knows they are a brood of vipers which means they are venomous enemies who are attacking deceptively they're acting like they're, they're acting like everything's okay but they're like slithering snakes in a pack of them jesus then makes a series of statements to the pharisees about who they really are first he says that they're simply doing what is natural for them you brood of vipers how can you speak good when you are evil I mean, here's these Pharisees who consider themselves to be righteous. They see a miracle by Jesus. They they purport that Jesus did this miracle by some other means in the Spirit of God. Jesus then tells them, first of all, that the sin you just committed, there comes a point in time where you cross the line, and it'll never be forgiven, either this life or the next to come. And then he tells them, you're a brood of vipers, and the reason you say this is because you are evil. No wonder they wanted to kill him. The problem is, is he's the Son of God, and He's right. He tells them what their words are saying. Their words reveal that they have an evil heart. Secondly, he explains what the real problem is. And this is a little verse or a phrase that ought to be underlined in all of our Bibles. It's really important. It makes the difference between, I think, biblical Christian living and some weird anomaly. I think it makes the difference between biblical parenting and behavior modification. I think it makes the difference between real life change when it comes to counseling and just a veneer. Because the Bible here gets to the core of the core of the core. Here's what it says. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's a really important phrase. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is our, our second four statement. And what Jesus says is that the mouth is a window to the soul. The mouth is a window to what's happening on the inside. In other words, bad actions or bad words are not created in a vacuum. They're not isolated or alone. That bad words or bad actions are a product of something else. And what the Bible tells us is that we ought never wonder what the real problem is, or where wicked things come from, we ought never wonder. Where does this come from? The Bible answers it over and over and over. Your kids are arguing in the back seat; they're fighting. You have a friend who blows it morally. You have something that comes out of your mouth you can't believe that came out, and you wonder where does this stuff come from? Answer: the heart. The problem, my friends, the real problem is not our actions. It's not our attitudes. The real problem is not our words. The the problem is not our environment, the culture, your family background. The real problem, the real problem is the heart. But I want you to see something even further. And this gets even deeper and, frankly, a little more frightening and even more personal. Because the problem is not just the heart. The problem is the abundance of the heart. So, the heart is the source of all this bad stuff, but what we learn here is that what comes out is just the abundance or the overflow of the heart. So, this makes the picture even worse. What comes out of the mouth is just the spillover. The idea is that it's grown and grown and grown and grown, and it can't be contained anymore, and so some crud spills over the edges, and that's what comes out. It's not that the heart is just continually producing stuff one at a time, like it's a factory, and it produces one bad thing after another, and that comes out, and that comes out, produce out, produce out. No, the idea is the heart is continually producing and storing and storing and storing and storing, and And eventually there's so much there that the overflow, the spillover, the containment is no longer possible, and something comes out. So the frightening reality is we only know a sliver of what is really going on inside of the heart of the heart another person. And the other reality is that people only know a sliver of who we really are. It is always safe to say that if we knew the full picture of the heart, it would be far worse than we could possibly imagine. And we know this to be true because we know our own hearts and we know what people don't know about them. You can think of it like this. In the summertime, when the heat comes, in our house, we have our garbage cans or inside the garage, and every once in a while, we'll miss the Wednesday pickup on our garbage, and then the garbage begins to overflow. And then, along with that, the combination of heat and little microorganisms and little white bugs that come from we don't know where, they begin to do things in that garbage, and you start to walk by the garbage can, and you're like, Ooh, oh, Who was supposed to take that out last week? And you get a whiff that's just disgusting. And then if it happens to be your job for the week to bring those garbage cans down to the edge of the driveway, you know you get closer and you get the full body smell of what's going on in there. And if you were to lift up the lid, you would get the full aroma. For those of you kids who don't know what I'm talking about, just ask your parents to give you this experience because I'll guarantee you it'll awaken this text to you in a new way. Smell the sniff. Oh, yes. Ooh, stick your head in there. See, that's what it is. Out of the abundance of the heart. So what we're seeing here is it's just a little spillover. It's just the whiff. But if you were to stick your head in the heart, oh, my soul, there'd be so much more. And what Jesus is saying here, it's out of the overflow. It's It's the abundance. So the issue isn't isolated creation of bad things. No, the issue is impossible containment. That's why thirdly, Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, verse 35, but the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So the source, in terms of what is behind the words or actions is the heart, and friends, it is the source that is most concerning. One of my hopes from this message is that you'll be better friends, better disciples, better parents, better spouses, that you'll realize, look, actions, actions are JV issues. The heart, that's a varsity issue. Actions, that's just what you see. The heart, that's what God sees. So Jesus is aiming for the heart. He's trying to show us that bad words, as telling as they are, are really not the ultimate tragedy. And he wants us to see that words reveal the orientation of the heart. Words reveal where the heart is going or where it is, or if you will, what land the heart lives in. You could think of words as the accent of the heart. Now since I've moved to Indiana, I'm told, although I've yet to believe this, that I have an accent. It's called the Michigan accent. I think it's just who's your arrogance. That's what I think it is. I I no one has even after the service, someone said, say this word. So I said it, they're like, see? I'm like, see nothing, man. Ain't nothing there. What are we talking about? So the problem with an accent is that when you have it, allegedly, you, you don't you don't you don't hear it. And an accent indicates where you're from. So one of the games that we'll play at home around a dinner table one night we did this and, and just for fun I said to my kids, All right, I'm gonna name, um, a region of the world and you do the, the accent. And so we're sitting around the table and I said, the South. And one of our boys said, Sugar, would you pass me the salt? So they passed it. So that's pretty good. Good. And I said, alright, Britain. One of our boys went, Mother, this was a fabulous meal. And that's okay. Californian. Like, this was the best time we've ever had. Like, it was great, right? Now, some of you are like, come on. California, you don't talk like that. Britain, no, no, no. South. And we would tell you, yes, you do. <laughs> you just don't know it, right? So there's an accent that reflects where you're from. So where you grew up, what your life experience has been. There's an accent of the heart, and the question, or the accent of the mouth, and the question is this what is the accent of our hearts in terms of our words? What's really going on inside of our soul? The problem is not just words or actions. The real problem is much deeper. And what's remarkable here is that Christianity is the only religion that properly answers the question where did that come from? All other religions try to simply modify behavior, to try and change the things that people do. But Christianity is the only religion, the only religion that gets to the heart of the matter, that actually offers a change of heart that can then result in a change of life. All other faiths just simply try and restrict behavior by doing, 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 doing. A couple weeks ago, I was stunned when Brit Hume, a... Um, guy who does some commentary on Fox News was discussing the situation with Tiger Woods. And Brit Hume apparently is a Christian, and he made a rather bold and, frankly, rather unpopular statement. Here's this quote. He said, Tiger Woods will recover as a golfer. Whether he can recover as a person, I think, is a very open question, and it's a tragic situation. But the Tiger Woods that emerges once the news has died out, The extent to which he can recover seems to me to depend on his faith. He says he's supposed to be a Buddhist. I don't think that faith offers the kind of forgiveness and redemption that is offered by the Christian faith. So my message to Tiger would be, Tiger, turn to the Christian faith and you'll make a total recovery and be a great example to the world. So why is that the case? Because Christianity is the only faith that deals fundamentally with a change of the heart. It is the only faith that identifies that the problem of men and women is not their actions. No, the problem is fundamentally who they are. That the heart, says Jeremiah 17, is deceitful and desperately wicked. And who can know it? The Bible tells us that the the heart is full of all manner of evil. And Ezekiel 36 tells us that God offers to us a change from the inside out. So what Jesus does here is he mercilessly exposes the heart with the intention of mercifully changing it. So, external, actions are telling. Internal, the sources within you. Now eternal, the consequences are colossal. The final heart-related issue is connected with the consequences. So remember, again, this came just after the discussion about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and we learn now that the problem is inside us, and next we see that there are eternal consequences. Verse 36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What he's doing here is attacking our tendency to downplay the problem of our words, and so he connects words to the judgment as evidence of who we really are. So he says, Every careless word, what does Jesus mean here? Well, you might think that word careless means like things you don't mean or words that just slip out or flippant. And that couldn't mean part of the definition. But the reality is the word careless is much broader than that. In fact, it's used over in James chapter 2 and verse 20. And those of you who grew up in a King James Bible will know this text that says, Faith without works is dead. That's the word. ESV renders it useless. So the idea of a careless word is a word that is spiritually useless. So Jesus is not only just talking about the kind of speech that is abusive or negative or angry. He's talking about the kind of speech that does nothing of value spiritually. So it's not just words that are outright sinful. No, it's words that are deceptively sinful. It is the language, it is the accent of the spiritual hypocrite. So what I want you to do is to feel the full weight of what Jesus is saying, of these evil words that come from the heart, because don't just think that he's referring to words that are abusive, derogatory, sinful, or somehow condescending. That certainly is the case, but it's even more. What Jesus is talking about here are the kind of words that sound spiritual, but they really are providing cover for a deceptive heart. So it's not just words that are explosive or loud or sinful, but rather it could even be the smooth, calm tone of a rebellious heart that makes everyone think they're righteous when in fact they are so far from it. It's the kind of words that James 2.16 identifies when you see someone who's in need of clothing and food and you say to them, be in peace, be warm and be filled. Jesus says that even those words spiritual sounding, religious language, meant to provide cover for who you are, that it shows how evil, how far off we really are. You see, Jesus knows the heart. Verse 37, For by your words you will be justified. Here's the third and final four statement. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This means that the useless words of the overflow of every kind will serve as evidence in God's judgment about who you are. It's as though you would stand before God, He would say to you, what kind of person were you? And you were to say, I I was a good person. And God would say, oh yeah, let's see. And He he opens up your heart and then shows you by your words that you were so far from a righteous person. He'll show you by all the wrong things you said, the sinful things you said, the lewd things you said, and then He'll also show you all the things that you said that were religious and they were were really a smokescreen, a red herring so you didn't have to be really, truly righteous. This is Holy Week. And this week, thousands, millions of people will flock to churches out of a desire to give cover that they are spiritual when the reality is they aren't. They'll sing songs, they'll say things, they'll pretend that they believe things that they really don't. And they'll think that they're righteous when the reality is their words will actually serve as the basis for future judgment. So words are a big deal because they come from the heart. They're a big deal because they verify who we really are. They they show us what we are really like on the inside. And what Jesus does here is he talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about the heart because he wants us to see where this stuff comes from. So we got external, we got internal, we got e- eternal. Let me give you now just a couple things that I want you to think about. How, how do you think about the heart? How do you think about this? Because this is a strong warning about this unforgivable sin. This is a, a strong examination, a deep examination of root causes. And the question then should, how would we think about our hearts? Four things here. The first would be this. I want you today and would encourage you to be heart aware. To realize that the heart what we're talking about here is not a spiritual organ, but rather what we're talking about is the spiritual controlling interplay of the mind, the affections, and the will. And what I would long for is for you to think about what controls you, what motivates you, what drives you, what is it the thing that you're thinking about, and to realize that that is the heart. And Proverbs 4 says that we are to guard the heart because out of it flows the spring of life. Where does all of this stuff come from? It comes from the inside. So we need to be heart aware. We need to see that the heart is dangerously deceptive, that it's deceitful above all things. And we need to see that the heart can be a massive idol factory. John Calvin described it as this constant producing idol machine that the heart is continually looking for false gods. And we need to understand the utter importance and dangers of the heart that we would be heart aware That as parents, we would not be content with just obedient children. That we ought to aim for the heart. When you pray over them, that you would pray, God, help my child's heart. That when you're a husband or a wife, that you would long for one another's hearts to be on the right path. That as a single person, as you begin to work in your career and collect friends and hang out with a group of people, that you ask yourself, what is the heart of this people? That you are heart-aware. And not be content with just externals, but really be aware of the heart. The second thing is this, is that you would know the heart changer. See, the Bible paints a very grim picture of what our natural and normal heart is like. Romans 1 tells us that the heart is naturally foolish and darkened and that we have naturally resistant and hard hearts. And yet the beautiful thing is, and if you've never heard this before, here's the thing. Jesus Christ came to change your heart. He came to take out the old you and put in a new you. He came to change you from the inside out. And that He's the only one who can do that. You see, the tragedy is you can't change your own heart. But the beautiful thing is is that Christ can. And the promise of the Old Testament was that one day there would come a new day when God would make that possible. Here's what it says, Jeremiah 31. I will put my law within them I will write it on their hearts I will be their God they will be my people no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least to the greatest declares the Lord I will forgive their iniquity I will remember their sin no more what sin? he's not just talking about all the stuff you do on the outside he's not just talking about what comes out of your mouth he means that he will forgive who you are in the innermost recesses of your heart that Jesus Jesus Christ came to cleanse you from the inside out to take you and make you a new creature. That the past is gone, the new has come, and that because of this you now live in a new reality with a new life and a new heart because of a Savior who conquered the citadel of your self-centered wicked heart that no one knows about but you and God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus can give you a new heart. Buddha can't do that. Muhammad can't do that. You can't do that. Only Christ can change you from the inside out. So you have to know the heart changer or there is no hope for you. Third, beloved, we have to diagnose the heart with the word. Listen to me. The only way you will ever know the heart is to know the word of God. It's the only tool that God has given us to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's the only thing in the universe. The ability of this message to rightly divide the heart and to diagnosis is directly related to the extent to which this sermon, my message, and my words fit with the power of the Word of God. The power doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from human language. It comes from the inspired text of the living God. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So listen to me. A steady diet of the Word of God through meditating, reading, listening, praying is vital to knowing, to knowing what is going on inside of your heart. So if you remove yourself from the Word of God, what will happen over time is you will become deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, and your heart will become hardened, and you will, before you know it, begin to drift... Your heart is in big trouble without the word of God. So when you come to your quiet time, don't come to that quiet time as if it's some kind of laissez-faire leisure reading. This is war with your heart and you need this word or your heart will drift. Open that scripture and say, God, help my heart. And use this word to divide it and slice it and pierce it. Because no counselor, no pastor, no spouse... No mentor, no disciple, no class, no book can do what this book can do. Fourth and finally, beloved, pray often about your heart. God knows what your heart needs. You only partly know what your heart needs, and so you ought to pray often, often about your heart. What should you pray? Pray things like Psalm 139. God, search me and know me. Help me, God, search my heart. Pray Psalm 86, 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, my heart is so divided. One minute I can think spiritual things, and the next I can think wicked things. Unite my heart to fear your name. Pray Proverbs four twenty-three, Lord, my heart is the spring of life. Help me to guard my heart. Pray that you wouldn't succumb to the deceitfulness of sin. Pray, God, Hebrews 3.13, I don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so help my heart to not be deceived. Pray, Matthew 22.37, Oh God, help me to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. You see, a right understanding of the heart should lead to earnest praying about it. God, help my heart. It's been a noticeable shift in my daughter's prayers over the last three months i don't know exactly what's happened but i'm grateful for it on the one hand i'm grateful she's no longer praying for dora and that's really good (laughs) i I don't know why but dora's off her list apparently she's not worried about swiper and what's going to happen there she's all used to be lord thanks for the food pray for our bodies pray for dora and recently she just prayed this Lord Jesus, help our hearts. And when she prayed that, I thought, oh, God. Oh, that the flavor of her home would be that she would know it is not just her actions. It's not just what she does. That the real problem, the flavor, the seasoning of our home was this is a place where we deal with hearts. And maybe out of a mouth of a four-year-old, there is just this sense that the real problem is the heart. So Jesus, help our hearts. And in an innocent little way, she captures the reality of what we all need, that we would say innocently and almost childlike, Jesus, help our hearts. Because this teaching on the unforgivable sin is meant to make us shudder, to show us that the real problem, beloved, is not just our words or the blasphemies that come out, as horrible as they may be, it's not just the curse words or the angry words or even the religious-sounding words, no, the real problem. Oh, the real problem is all the stuff that nobody knows about. All the stuff that Jesus died for to cleanse us from the real problem is our heart. And what we ought to pray is, oh God, help our hearts. So Lord, that's what we pray today. That you would help our hearts we thank you that through the shed blood of jesus we have even audience god the reality is you know fully who we are everybody else just sees a sliver not you you know it all and yet in you there's forgiveness and cleansing and hope But at the same time, look, we have so far to go. Our hearts say, come, Lord Jesus. Remove the presence of sin that wars against our souls. And in the interim, help our hearts, we pray. Well, Chuck just continues to play. You may be here and God is just touching you right now. and He's just pressing on your heart. And this message, the circumstances of your life, everything is converged. It's because he wants you to take a careful inventory all under the banner of grace about your heart. And maybe you're here today, you don't know Christ as your Savior. And your issue is needing to come to Christ for the first time. It may be that you know Christ, but the reality is you've not been heart aware as we did in the first service i'd like to do this in this one as well that i'd like to just to, to pray for you that if you feel just led to say yes lord that's my prayer help my heart i'm going to ask where you are just to stand to your feet just between you and the lord is your declaration just to say lord that's me i'm just saying by standing now that i want you to help my heart Lord, my heart, just between you and the Lord, Lord, help my heart. Heart is deceitful and wicked of all things. Who can know it? And so you stand to say, God, I can't. But you do, so help my heart. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who stand here today who want to just come back to the rugged, gutsy, simple, childlike reality of Jesus, help our hearts. Help our hearts and our marriages. Help our hearts with our kids. Help our hearts with hard people, with difficult circumstances, with jobs that are tough, with finances that don't meet, with sins that don't seem to go away. Lord, help our hearts. Make the Word of God in the lives of these who are standing fresh and new that you could fill them with a new sense of your joy and your presence through the Word. And let them feel right now, Lord, the love that flows from the cross of Calvary that even though you know it all, you have wiped it all away and motivate us to do your will and good works so Lord Jesus we say to you help our hearts and all God's people said amen